Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa usalli wa usallam ala sayyid al-awwaleen wal akhireen nabiyyana Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa barak wa sallam. All praise are due to Allah, Lord of the worlds, and peace and blessings be upon our beloved Prophet Muhammad, the master of the first and the last, and upon his family, his companions, and all those who call to his way and establish his sunnah to the day of judgment. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah, as we move along uh, in the Islamic revival, we understand that uh, the issue of tajdeed is um, one of the most important issues uh, faced by the Muslim world today. Because as we um, move into 2019, um, the tragedies and the attacks are unfolding uh, on the Muslim world in many different areas. And much of that uh, comes about when Muslims are disunited and when we don't understand uh, our faith uh, and when we become stagnated. And when we become stagnated, you know, it is the way of uh, the evil one and the forces of shaitan uh, to make uh, a counterattack. And so um, the issue of the revival of Islam as we have understood, is to not change the religion, but it is to revive the teachings and the principles uh, in a way that could be uh, practiced by people in uh, whatever particular time period uh, we are living. And so, this time period uh, that we are living in, yeah, we're filming now. Okay, just move it to the side here. This time period that we are living in, uh, is um, very complex. And there are certain issues which have come to the surface that were not issues um, in the past. And the, the urban societies we are living in, um, the type, the level of extremes in materialism we're living in, um, it, you know, is not like it was in the past in the sense that not that they were rich and poor, they were always rich and poor, but the global community and the impact other societies have on each other uh, is like no other time before. And so uh, these 40 hadiths uh, will give us um, an insight into certain key areas uh, that we need to focus on in order to um, really understand what is happening and to make a way forward. And um, this takes us to uh, hadith number 22. And in this particular hadith on dealing with elders and children, um, <clears throat> this is one of the hadiths that is small in its text, but actually um, what comes out of it, um, can, uh, we can discuss this for hours. And, uh, but we will be forced to, because of time, uh, to narrow it down uh, to certain uh, uh, principles. And uh, Amr ibn Shu'ayb reports on the authority of his father and his grandfather that the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu said, لَيْسَ مِنَّا مَنْ لَمْ يَرْحَمْ صَغِيرَنَا وَيَعْرِفْ شَرَفَ كَبِيرِنَا This is uh, reported by Abu Dawood and Tirmidhi. Uh, and the Prophet Sallallahu is reported to have said, whoever does not have mercy on our children, or uphold the rights and dignity of our elders is not from us. 
And so um, this opens up two important areas in the revival. Because many times, especially in the 20th century, the activities in the masjids and the so-called revival of Islam and the important part of, the, of Islam really um, seem to be focused on men um, from the age of about uh, uh, 25 uh, to maybe about 50. But it was basically men uh, at this uh, age who were the focus of the movement. And um, uh, beside that, uh, the movement or what was happening in the Masajid uh, did not have much to do with the community. But these two areas that are brought up uh, by this uh, uh, hadith uh, is the area of uh, children or the youth and it is the area of the elders. And um, to look at the two and I'll start with the elders and then go into the youth because that will be the longer uh, of the two. Um, the area of uh, elder Muslims uh, is one which in the past uh, was not really <clears throat> considered to be uh, a special area in the sense that we had strong communities, we had strong families. And with our families, it was understood within the uh, context of a family that there are two extremes in the life period that require attention. One is when the person is uh, very young, the child, and the other is when the person is elderly um, and going into the last phase of life. Because these are the two phases of life where the human being does not have uh, necessarily full capacities. So the family then uh, takes care of the child. The child is coming into the world. Uh, the food of the child, the protection of the child, the life of the child, every aspect is being dealt with. Uh, by the mother and the father, and it was a natural thing. And you didn't have to have necessarily uh, <clears throat> special programs or special training uh, as to how to deal with babies and how does a family deal with the baby, because the baby is integrated into the family. So it, it is part of the movement of the family. And generally speaking, you would find that uh, the youth in the family would uh, naturally take care of their younger brother or sister. Um, and it wasn't considered to be a, a burden on them. Uh, it was a natural thing. What has happened with um, the present secular materialistic culture is that people are trained to be individuals. So every person goes for themselves. And even the younger person now, who is not fully in control of his or her life, they feel somehow that they have rights, in a sense of rights of adults, to tell adults what to do, uh, to tell their breadwinners what to do. Um, and when they are uh, given tasks to do, uh, in many cases they feel that this is a burden. This is too much that you're putting on us. Um, and uh, it causes an imbalance in the family. And especially um, uh, teenagers, and early teenagers especially you find uh, in the Western countries, and now again the concept of Western 
is international. Because with global culture, um, the culture of the secular world is beamed into our homes. It's literally beamed into our homes. And this is something which never happened in the past. And I remember some friends of mine who had come back from Mauritania. And Mauritania in West Africa is one of the places where um, scholarship uh, was able to uh, remain in a very pure state. Because as Islam spread across North Africa and the teachings of Imam Malik, Rahimahullah, um, the Muwatta and the Maliki uh, school of thought, um, this penetrated the desert region. And um, because of the strong Islamic movements that appeared in North Africa, Al-Muwahidun and Al-Murabitun, and then also in Andalusia, and going right down to West Africa, all that area was really one empire. It was part of Islamic. At one point, they even had a Khalifa that was in uh, Al-Andalus in Spain. And so within that area, the, um, many of the ulama who came into North Africa, uh, especially when Al-Andalus fell, when Spain fell, and that's 15th century, so it was 1492 that Spain was given over, uh, Granada was given over uh, to the Spanish uh, king and queen, Ferdinand and Isabella. And when it was given over, at that time, many of the ulama and the people fled. They did hijra and they went to North Africa. And they found some um, positive things, but also there's a struggle that was going on and certain points of corruption. So many of the ulama went into the desert. And so the ulama, especially of the Hassaniya, what is called Hassaniya, these are descendants of, uh, of Al-Hassan, uh, from the family of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, and many descendants coming with, uh, from Yemen, you know, whose Arabic was the original Arabic, uh, went into the desert. So the Hassani uh, Arabs who were there um, carrying the Maliki school of thought, they intermarried uh, to a certain extent with the Berber people, the Amazigh people, were very strong people. And they maintained communities in the desert. So their Arabic, the level of their Arabic, is generally higher than people in the cities. And you find that all over the, all the Muslim world with any language. Because in the city, you mix with other nationalities. In the desert, you're there by yourself. The difference with Islam is that the Quran and the Sunnah and the Arabic, the purity stayed in the desert. So, so the level of their scholarship uh, was an extremely high uh, level. Um, that they had. And uh, these are the people in Mauritania uh, known as Shanakata, Shinkit uh, is the place. And the Mauritanian scholars are known up until today in Medina and Mecca and around. They're very famous in terms of their, their, their grasp on poetry and on languages, one of the highest in the Muslim world. And uh, some of my friends had come back from Mauritania and they came into a village. And this village um, had so many uh, huffad of the Qur'an. Every house had a hafid, and as they went to the village, it was like the buzzing of bees that they heard, especially after Fajr, uh, as people reading the Qur'an. And um, they stayed for a period of time, and they came back um, 
eight to ten years later. During that time, the secular powers, especially the, the American embassy and whatnot, came into the area and they started giving out free satellite dish. So the satellite dish spread around. Okay? And with the satellite dish, they even gave free TVs if you want one to. People thought they were getting a, a gift, but they're actually now, the culture of the West is now in their house. Whereas before, no conquering army could ever consider entering their house. Because first off, you have to cross the desert, right? You've got to make it through the desert, right? And then you've got to make it through them, right? But to get into their house would be the last possible thing. Um, but the TV is sitting right in your house. And so when they came back, they couldn't find anybody who was half of the Quran uh, in the village. The ulama would all went into the, straight into the desert. And, and to get the scholars, you had to literally travel days into the desert, and then you would see another uh, university enclave type of thing that's there in the middle of the desert. Somalis also spoke about um, one of their leaders, uh, Said uh, Barri, who was their famous leader be before Somalia broke up. And Said Barri uh, used to say that um, I control my people, right? Anything politically, economically, <coughs> I tell them and they do it. He was an iron-fisted ruler. But he said, I would never go into anybody's house and tell them how to run their life. That's out. He wouldn't even consider doing that, although he is the dictator, in a sense, right? So, so the whole thing of coming in the house, impacting the youth um, with this globalization, coming first with radios and then with the television and now with the internet, they have penetrated right into our families. And what they brought was programming that not only had entertainment, but it had morality inside the entertainment. So therefore, ideas like um, nakedness, adultery, drinking of alcohol, um, stealing, lying, um, became looked upon as uh, uh, heroic things. Most of the heroes in American movies up until now are gangsters and, and criminals. That's most of the time. And even if, he's, even if he's a hero, he's like a bad guy, but he's a good guy. It's this dual personality type of person. He's a really good guy, but he's divorced from his wife. Uh, and half the program is about he's picking up his kid all the time. Watch their programs, right? So they, 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 they're, they're almost, they almost teach against strong families. And so... Um, this confusion going on, especially in the minds of the youth and the families, caused this problem, um, uh, this imbalance you know, in the Islamic family. And so the elder generation, which within our traditional Islamic societies, as the Prophet is saying, that um, uh, if, you, if you don't have... If you don't know or respect, uphold the rights and the dignity of the elders, then you're not from us. That's a very serious statement, okay? which means you need to uphold their rights 
and their dignity. The rights is that um, the weakness that they may have is covered by the family because they are the ones that covered the children when they, when they had nothing. So now they're losing their strength, and so therefore the family then uh, has, makes a special place within it, um, not just a, you know, a, a little hut on the side or a back room. No, but something with dignity, sharaf. Sharaf includes you know, the rights and, and the dignity uh, and the honor you know, of a person you know, like that. So you would see young people in our traditional society sitting around and listening to an elder tell a story. Okay, and the elder tells the story and animates the story and the youth would be so interested in the story. And in those days, that was the radio, the TV, the internet. It's coming from the experiences of the elders. And they're telling you the stories of their lives and of the community and you know, animals and so much knowledge was passed on. Right? Today, with, the, with this uh, other form of communication, in the mind of the youth, the <coughs> words of the elders are no, no longer as important. And in some cases, it even goes to the extreme where they challenge what you are saying because they, I can Google it. So they Google it. Although this person has had 40 years of experience doing that thing, right? But they will go to uh, Sheikh Google or Dr. Google uh, to get an answer and then think that they know uh, what the answer is. And the elder has to sit there and look at them uh, and, and wait until they fall and make a mistake and then tell them uh, in, you know, in a nice way, um, you know, remember what I told you? Right? I had 40 years of experience. Right? But what is coming out of this uh, is a type of breakage. So, so the breakage comes where the honor of the uh, older generation is then surpassed by other things. And um, the heroes, for the most part, that the younger generation heroes who are over 60 years old, or even in their late 50s. You, you, very, you very seldom um, you know, have anybody like that. I mean, now, within our societies, the heads of state and some of the people who are in leadership tend to be over 50 years old. Um, but now, with, with their weakness and what's happening, the youth doesn't even respect them. They don't even get respect uh, anymore. So this is very important because in the revival, the family relationships have to be mended back together. It has to be mended back together because that, that solid Muslim family is the unit which is the base and the core of the Islamic society and ultimately the Islamic State. It comes out of that base. Okay, so when that base is strong and solidified, the whole society is, is solidified. If the base is weak and broken apart, then there is no strength for the society to stand on. You see? And so um, uh, that dignity and uh, the rights are extremely important. Part of the rights, uh, as I mentioned, uh, is the state of weakness that a person is going into after years. And the Prophet basically who passed away at 63 years old, 
uh, basically said the ages of our, uh, my nation is about 63. So 63 is basically, we consider to be a lifetime. And we can say, if you're older than 63, uh, you're living on borrowed time. So uh, like myself, anybody who's over 63, every day you wake up, you need to say, Alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given me another day in this earth because it's borrowed time. Okay? So with the weakness coming in, and especially now, by the will of Allah and the ability Allah has given to human beings, people will tend to live longer. Okay? Because our health system, our, our societies in many parts of the world will allow people to have a longer life, except in the areas where there's conflict, uh, where there are famines and droughts and big conflicts, but the, where the areas there's no conflicts, uh, modern society has overcome. Uh, many of the serious diseases that used to kill people, and you would expect people to die from these diseases, but modern treatment has overcome that. So in some uh, parts of the world, you'll see people living on an average to be in their 70s and some of the 80s, uh, and even some parts of the world, 90s. Right? So therefore, when a person reaches um, the 70s, but especially the 80s, uh, that person is in a weakened state, generally, and so therefore, there are certain rights. So this is part of sharaf. So it is not a special favor that the family is doing or the society is doing to help somebody from the older generation. It's a duty. It's part of their responsibility in this earth. And the Prophet ﷺ is saying that if you don't deal with this, you're not from me. And that is a serious statement. Because if you, you are not from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in this Ummah, then, then you're in trouble. Right? It's a very powerful statement. And so one of the um, uh, you know, sad issues that has come is that the society itself here, you know, being based on consumerism, and uh, they say it's dog-eat-dog -dog society, right? the strong will survive. And if you have a wolf pack, right, a pack of wild dogs, when the leaders get weak, the other wolves kill them. They get rid of them and get somebody else. So that's how the society is. So the society has developed uh, what they call old age homes. And many of these old age homes um, were set up in such a way that uh, it is more of a disposal unit. It's a way of disposing from getting away from your responsibility to the older generation. You give it over to somebody else and you don't take the responsibility you know, as it was in the past and you just pay a little money uh, and they go into the old home. And the problem Muslims have faced here in the Western countries is that um, many cases have come up uh, speaking about the old age homes, that there's a lot of abuse that goes on there. Because the people are not attached to the elders that are there. It's just a job. And if, and if they're angry and they have a problem, they'll take out their anger on the person. Because it's not their father or their mother. It's just somebody who's laying there in the bed. Right? That's how they look at it. And so they lose that love. So that shut off 
or that dignity and honor is tied in with family. It's tied in. And at least even if, uh, and this is really a new uh, institution um, developed by many Muslim communities where the Muslims themselves take it upon themselves to develop uh, old age homes run by sincere Muslims uh, who provide an Islamic atmosphere uh, there and will provide the dignity, there's prayer areas, they understand uh, the rights of an individual in terms of covering their private parts, uh, in terms of you know, their dignity and their honor, they will give that respect there within that institution. So this is something which is only now developing in many of our communities and, and really it's only a few communities that actually have this. Um, but yet we have a large amount of elders who are in now within our community. Okay? So this is a big issue. This is a major issue which needs to have a whole evening of discussion and interaction with the community and ideas as to how to deal with it um, because it is becoming a, a larger, a bigger and bigger problem in our community with uh, the, the rise of uh, you know, a larger sec sector of the community uh, being you know, over um, 65, 70 years old. So with that happening, it has become a very serious issue. So this is the first part of the hadith. Uh, it is dealing with uh, the elders. I want to open up the floor for any questions or feedback anybody has concerning um, this, this tradition and, and the elders. Okay, floor is open for any uh, questions that anybody has. So again, this area here. That would have been like in the 80s, something like in the 80s, back like late 70s, 80s, going around then when it was first penetrating you know, many of the Muslim countries. Yeah. So this area here, again, these hadiths uh, you know, came about through practical interaction. right? And this hadith here, if people have any, any doubt in their mind about dealing with their elders, and they respect the words of the Prophet ﷺ. This is a powerful hadith. Okay, so this is an important one to keep, and the discussions that come along with it. The second part uh, of the hadith is dealing with uh, the, the children. And um, here it is saying to have mercy on the children. That if you do not have mercy on the children then you're not from us. And uh, Rahim, Rahma, uh, is coming from Rahim. The Rahim is actually the womb of the mother. It's called the Rahim. Because in the womb of the mother, there is uh, one of the greatest mercies you know, after the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because the, the, root, the womb is dealing with all of the needs of the child. The physical needs are being dealt with, uh, in terms of food coming through the, the umbilical cord. Um, warmth is there from the mother's body. Um, health, even psychological uh, help. If, if the mother is in a good psychological state, then the child will also have a good time uh, within the womb of the mother. So the concept of Rahma, coming out of the idea of, of the Rahim, 
is not just having mercy on the child, they cry and we give them some candy. So you give halawa to the child and say, MashaAllah, and give the... No, that's not just mercy. Mercy is a package, just like it is in the womb. And it means dealing with the, the needs of the youth, trying to understand what the children and the younger generation is going through. Because this generation is now growing up in a world that is one of the strangest times uh, ever to be in. And sometimes when you look at your children uh, and your grandchildren, you make dua and you really feel sorry for them in a sense that like, you know, this world here that they're coming into, this is not easy. This is not easy. So therefore, um, it is the duty of their parents and the community, right, to have mercy on them. Have mercy on them. So that will begin, obviously, by taking care of them, providing for their needs, but also understanding their challenges. And that leads us into an area, which is a very big area, and that is the challenges facing the youth. The challenges facing the youth in the 21st century. And this is part of um, a presentation that I made in Istanbul, Turkey, uh, uh, you know, and in, in Washington. Um, and it's a very serious issue, and it's, it was surprising um, that when I brought some of these areas up, even in Istanbul, that um, the people were reacting to what I was saying, like people here. So what's hitting them in their youth is like what's hitting our youth. So it's no longer just the Muslim world now. right? They're, in some parts of the Muslim world, they're getting movies and things before we get it here, especially the richer countries. So their youth are going through unbelievable changes right in front of the eyes of their parents. And um, the United Nations... Uh, you know, did a study and, and, you know, and they found out that really in, in the world population that 48% of the world population is actually 25 or under. 48% of people on earth, you could say, you know, half the people on earth are 25 and under. The world population, not just talking about Muslims. So actually the majority of people on earth are actually young people. The majority of the people on earth. And in some parts of the world, especially, uh, you can say, the Muslim world and some parts of Africa and Asia, uh, it's like 60%. Because some of the European countries, um, they're like, they're graying populations. So they do not have a lot of youth. They're actually going backward now. And that's one of their problems, is that they're seeing youth uh, coming up all over the place. That's why they're so afraid of Muslims now. It's part of the reasoning why the right-wing extremists want to exterminate Muslims. And the killer who killed the people in uh, uh, um, New Zealand and in Oslo, Norway and other places, you'll see as when, you, when they do their manifestos, part of it is to frighten the Muslims, but it's also to exterminate them, to get them out of the European countries, to cut down their populations. Because they're seeing now that they're losing out. And you know, I really saw this 
when I went to, uh, when I traveled in Europe itself. I mean, one of the strangest things I ever saw uh, is in Scotland. You know Scottish people? They have a strange accent. If you listen to a Scottish person speak in English, right, especially if he speaks uh, street uh, Scottish, you can hardly understand them, right? But to see a, a Pakistani youth speaking Scottish was one of the strangest things I ever saw in my life. I'm looking at his face, and he's speaking pure Scottish, right? Also, when I saw Arab youth in Norway speaking, and Somalis speaking Norwegian and Scandinavian, Swedish, perfect Swedish and Scandinavian language. But the Somali are Arab. So you're looking at the face, but the body language, the sound, it's exactly like a white Scandinavian. This is frightening for the Europeans because their children are confused about their identity, they're taking drugs, they're, having pro they're sterilizing themselves, and our families are rising, building, taking the rights of the society, getting the health, getting the education, right? And so it's rising Right? and the white population is lowering, this is frightening for them. So therefore the right-wingers, they want to exterminate. They want to exterminate, at least from their lands, get us out of their countries so they can try to put a wall around their countries right? and then keep the rest of the world poor and they will live behind the wall. It's too late. We're already inside. And the problem, another problem they face is that every time a person of color marries a European, if, if a Chinese person marries a European, the baby's Chinese. If an African marries uh, a European, think about this, like President Obama, he's Afro-American, he's, Afro he's African, but he's half and half. So they lost, you see? So in all these different ways they're losing, and this is a frightening thing uh, for the European countries. So we're going to take a break now, and then we'll come back and finish uh, our discussion on the younger generation. Wabillahi uh, tawfiq.
الله أكبر الله أكبر أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله حي على الصلاة حي على الفلاح قد قامت الصلاة قد قامت الصلاة الله أكبر الله أكبر لا إله إلا الله
so nice. There you go, that's what it is. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah wa sallatu wa sallam Rasulullah wa ba'd. Prophet Muhammad sallallahu on one occasion, uh, and this is reported by Amr ibn Shu'ayb, on the authority of his father and his grandfather, that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu said, Laysa minna men lam yarham sagirana wa yarif sharafa kabirina. He said that whoever does not have mercy on our children or uphold the rights and dignity of our elders is not from us. So there were two areas, <coughs> excuse me, two areas that we were looking at. One is the area of the elders and the other is the youth. And this issue of the youth is, uh, I believe, one of the major areas uh, within the revival and the, the sector of the youth within our population is probably the most important in terms of implementing the revival because they will live in the future. And many of the problems that we had in the past um, because of the strange circumstances that they're in, they may be able to overcome some of these problems. But as far as the challenges facing um, the younger generation, there are a few that they're growing into. And, uh, of course, these are deep areas which we could have a lot of discussion on. But I want to give you just an overview uh, of some of these points that I discussed in Istanbul and also in uh, Washington. <clears throat> Number one is atheism. Atheism, or the belief in no God, ilhad in Arabic. So it's one thing to have polytheism, where you think there's more than one God. But atheism is no God. There's no creative force, uh, it's just nature or chance or whatever it is. And atheism now is one of the big challenges ideologically facing um, 
the Western world, and it's hitting Muslims as well because of the global culture. And within these movies and the discussions, um, generally, you know, it, 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 it gives you an idea that if somebody's heavy into science and technology, they cannot be into the concept of God. The concept of God is for people who don't know science. And the movies such as, there was one famous one uh, called Star Trek. And Star Trek was a journey taken into space to different years. I mean, there's been years of, the, of this program. And if, if you go back over the Star Trek, and even when I was younger, I watched some, some of the Star Trek. I've seen many of them. And, uh, but if you watch them, they never mention God. That's not possible. You will never see, even when they're in trouble, they're dying, anything, where they talk about God. Okay? What they do talk about is the fact that they say, go, man, go wherever you want to go. Like, you are the one who will decide your future. And in one, they had some alien force that had, you know, great power. But it showed up in, in the form of a man, like, you know, but it's this alien force. That was the closest ever they had uh, to a creator. It's an all-powerful alien force. Uh, but they never mentioned God, and it's uh, what they call secular humanism. Secular humanism. So it is taking God out of the equation. And it is that, you know, we do things because it's good as human beings. So whatever we feel is good, is good. Because we are the creators of our own destiny, you see? So it's through secular humanism that they can break down a lot of things in the past, you know, but the key to it is atheism. Okay, so this is a major challenge facing the younger generation. Also, materialism. And materialism uh, today has gone to an extreme because there are more billionaires, millionaires and billionaires than ever before, even though poverty is still widespread around the world. But, you know, it tends to be in extremes, either too little or too much. And the Prophet ﷺ said in authentic hadith, إِنَّ لِكُلِّ أُمَّةِ فِتْنَةِ وَفِتْنَةُ أُمَّةِ الْمَعْمَةِ Every nation has a trial and test. Trial and test of my nation is wealth. Okay? So, materialism. This is a big uh, area. And um, it is estimated <clears throat> that over 3 billion people live on less than $2.50 per day. 3 billion people. Right? Two fifty per day is what they live on. Okay? So this is an international crisis. Um, the third point of the challenges facing the younger generation is the loss of traditional values. Loss of traditional values. And this is not just for Muslims, it is for all societies. And you could call it to a certain extent the McDonaldization of the world. McDonald's, right? So it's the McDonaldization of the world where this culture of burgers and fries and the golden arches and whatnot this, this new international culture is pumped at people all around the world. So you will find people who have beautiful traditional dishes uh, of, you know, biryani, and, you know, they have, uh, you know, so many different uh, surah, and, you know, so many lovely dishes, kebabs, and so many things. But you ask your children uh, what you want to eat, burgers and fries. 
And if you put the traditional food on one side and burgers and fries on another side, more than likely they're going to go for the burgers and fries. Now I'm not saying that just because it's a burgers and fries, but this is an example of the mentality. You see? Because along with the burgers and fries is a culture. You don't just get McDonald's, you get golden arches. McDonald's has a whole culture in the foods. They even have places where the children play and they even have, um, they'll change McDonald's slightly too, based on the country. One country I was in, Arab country, it was called Mc-Arab, right? Not McDonald's, Mc-Arab, right? So they made it slightly different with some spices. Even in Indian places, they put a little chili in it, you know, some spice to make it hot, you know, in some places. So, uh, but the loss of traditional values. And for a Muslim, that is a crisis. Because when we lose our traditional values, which you could say comes out in the Sunnah, because our Muslim countries, for the most part, are based on the Sunnah. I'd say the majority of our values and practices. In many countries, there's something left over from the previous culture. And there's nothing wrong with that, if it follows the Sunnah. But there are some things that are left over from Hindu culture, from Christian culture, from Buddhist culture, from traditional African religion, um, something left over and you'll see it in the practice of the people. Okay? And um, uh, this is the problem, you know, when the younger generation now goes, because the culture basically is Islamic. So when they don't want traditional things, in many cases, they are also rejecting Sunnah. They're rejecting Islamic values. Okay, so the men and women eating in different places. You know, and um, Prophet is saying, you know, to the young boy, you know, that when you eat, say Bismillah. Right? And then eat with your right hand. And eat from that which is in front of you. Of course, they were eating from a group dish, right? So you don't reach over and grab the chicken from the other brother. You, know, you eat whatever's in front of you, okay? That's sunnah. Today, it's dog-eat-dog, dog. you know, and the whole culture, this person says, well, now I am cultured, so therefore I have a knife and a fork, so I will cut my meat and I will eat. It's your left hand, man. So because you've got a fork in your hand, do you have to go like this? You see? It's a small thing, but it's a sunnah, especially for somebody who knows, who prefers to have like this. If you want the knife and the fork, no problem, but you can just as easily put the fork here, you can cut, and you can go like this. Why do you have to do this? You see? It's a mental thing. And that loss is very serious. It's very serious. And it's one of the challenges we face. The next one, number four, is what is called peer pressure. And peer pressure is the pressure of youth on youth. And peer pressure generally in the past was when you go to a school and people wear certain clothes and you know, act a certain way. And you know, if you're in a school with non-Muslims, especially when they're the majority, you're forced to, to, to follow that. There's even peer pressure in Muslim schools, but it could be a positive peer pressure. 
It can be positive or negative. But younger generation will have an impact on each other. Okay, so this is, especially those living in urban areas where their children are going to school with uh, non-Muslims and society, peer pressure is big. It's big. Number five, the, young, the challenges facing the youth, unemployment and poverty. Especially for the youth who are going into their teens. Uh, unemployment. And in the past, within our traditional families, we would pass on skills to the younger generation naturally. The girls would learn you know, how to take care of them, their bodies, you know, how to deal with children, how to cook, you know, even have a skill, a trade. Muslim women in, in, in most of our countries actually had a way they could make money. It might not be the same as the men, but they would be making carpets and whatnot. When you look at the Turkish cultures, right? I'm, I've been following Turkish culture. You'll see the women are the ones producing beautiful carpets. It's the women who do it. And Iran, it's not the men. Okay, and, and that put, brings more money to them than anything else. So they have the skill. Okay, so um, that was naturally passed on. The, the young boys would learn how to be a man. And you have what is called rites of passage. And rites of passage is when a person's a teenager, in many societies, it's, a, it's, it's sort of something when you're coming out. You reach puberty. And when, when a young boy or girl reaches puberty, it's a very serious change in their life, right? But it is a change. And, and, and in our societies, we would develop a way Islamically to start letting them know about their body, letting them know about sexual relationships, and also even um, challenging them, especially the young men, challenge them, take them you know, with the adults, go out into the desert, you know, whatever, teach them trades, they start learning trades. Right? And they get skills. So when they have these skills and these trades, you know, then uh, they are able to go into adulthood and provide for themselves. Right? Now, they don't have that. Many times their, their whole skill is basically studying in a school and passing a test or maybe manipulating a cell phone. Right? They're really good at Instagram and you know, Snapchat and whatever. They, they, they manipulate. But in terms of making money, a life, you know, taking care of your life, very few people will be able to get an income out of manipulation of a cell phone. There are some who will, but it's very few. Okay? So, uh, this is a big issue. Number six, violence. This generation is facing violence in a way that I think has never been before. And that is not because of the amount of people who are dying. And that might sound strange. When you think of Syria, when you think of um, you know, Iraq, when you think of Yemen, when you think of even what happened in Cambodia and you know, the different wars. But in the past, there have been brutal wars. Even World War I and World War II, the amount of people died in those wars. We still haven't reached that, those numbers in, in, in the 21st century. But violence now is integrated into our lifestyle. And many of the youth in the Western countries and Western influenced countries are playing video games. And in the video games, uh, as well as in the movies, it's raw violence. 
Now, the movies introduced them to this. You know, and it's not just for adults, even what they call cartoons. You have cartoons where one animal is killing the other animal. Right? And then cartoons where you have, they're almost like adult programs, but in a cartoon form. Okay? So they will see violence from when they're young. And when they're on the video game, they are watching graphic violence. And some people even said that this um, tape that was released by the killer in New Zealand, right? because he, he, he filmed himself, they, one of the first things I heard a lot of people say, it looked like a video game. Okay? So that brutal murder, I had to watch some of the tape. right? That brutal murder that they're kill, killing people, right? for those who are doing the video games, they've already seen that. And it's only later when they heard the stories of, of the victims, right? when the reality of it came, that it, it, it impacted them. But for a lot of youth, it did not impact them at that point, because they see that all the time. And some of the movies that, that uh, people watch has got uh, a woman being raped and killed. Now, a woman being raped and then killed is one of the worst possible things that can happen to a human being. It's horrendous. It's horrific. And nobody's supposed to see that. Only hardened warriors who are out in battlefields used to see this. And they would come back, have some mental problems, right? It's only through our uh, spirituality they could get themselves together. But, you know, countries that don't have it uh, have PTSD, right? So, so it's, 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 after, it's a post-trauma. After the trauma, they come back mentally, because you're not supposed to see people being killed like this. Now, younger people are watching thousands of people die. If you could count the people who died in the video games and then in movies, some young people may have watched close to a thousand people die. In the past, um, you wouldn't do that. It's only an extreme case. And I remember living in Medina, and this is only in the 70s. I lived in Medina with my family. I was part of the society. And I would see two men, and Arab men in that society are very vocal, right? And they're yelling at each other and cursing and, you know, carrying on. And I'm getting ready for someone to pull out a knife or a gun because, you know, in my culture here, that's it, right? And they yell at each other until they blow off their steam and then they go home. But they're not thinking about hitting each other because you don't hit people and fight and that's in the society of Medina. You just don't do that. You see? And you have men even who would, uh, you know, cab drivers would get women in the car and they would try to, you know, lure the, the women, you know, and sing songs to them and everything. But in most cases, they would never consider doing anything to that girl because the had, the hudud, the punishment is there, right? for adultery and the punishments are there. So they used to say in Medina, Al-Ain Tawila or Yad Qasir, that the eye is long, but the hand is short. You get that? So you can look, you know, you're not going to do much, right? But the eye can look around and do a lot of things. You see? Now, it's, we're in a violent age. To the point where people even consider 
nuclear warfare. They're considering it. That maybe if they blow up over there fast enough, it'll just be over there. And it's not going to affect the rest of the world. And that means you're killing like hundreds and thousands of people instantly. They're considering doing that. And they're even showing the children post-apocalypse movies what happens after the nuclear war. That's the theme of a lot of their entertainment. Okay? So violence is a new thing. Okay? On this level, it's a challenge. Seven, there is forced migration. Forced migration. And this is something which in the past we have migrated in the 20th century, uh, especially out of the Muslim world, mainly for economic reasons. Palestinian people had to migrate from back when they faced, you know, back in the middle of the 20th century. But for most Muslims, when they traveled or migrated, it was economics, economic migration. Now it is, you know, wholesale wars and fighting famines which is going on and it's forcing large uh, you know, groups in the population uh, to migrate uh, into the cities or to leave their countries. I mean, I always ask myself, you know, when you look at those boats living, leaving Libya or leaving Cyprus, you know, Cyprus or Turkey, whatever, and going into the Mediterranean, good chance they're going to die hanging off the boat. You have to ask yourself, why would they put themselves in, in, that, in danger like that? What are they running from? I mean, usually people who run like that, it's a fire in back of them or some major thing. So, and, these, and many of them are Muslim countries. So what are they running from? Right? It's a serious thing. But they're running from Muslims to non-Muslims. And it's a strange phenomenon. So the younger generation's got to deal with this. Number eight, illegal substance abuse. This is a major challenge for the younger generation. And that is the, not only the alcohol, but drugs and the use of drugs. And these drugs, you know, uh, have take many different forms, even within our cultures themselves. Um, there's now the scourge of hashish and marijuana, which is being made legal here and whatnot. Um, but there's other drugs even within our own culture. Within the culture of Yemen and East Africa, there is khat, right, or the chat, that they, the leaf that they chew, right, which is, you know, addictive and it has, it destroys your teeth and your liver and whatever. It was, it's, it's called khat. Sometimes they call it chat. But khat, the Arabs will say khat. And it's a leaf, right? And they take the leaf, and uh, you get a bunch of leaves, and you put it and you see the side of their mouth big like that, right? And he's got that. And then you keep that inside, right? And then you, then you drink water, or you drink Coca-Cola, or you drink something else, and the liquid wets the leaf, right? And it makes more juice to come out the leaf, and you get the juice. So you can continue with a, a wad of khat in your mouth for a period of time, you know, and you'll see pictures. Uh, I'm sorry to use pictures of Yemenis, because they're suffering. But even you see the Houthis and many people in the battles, look at the picture close, and you see a lot of them, their things puffed up. He didn't get punched in his thing, and he has a, you know, swollen uh, mouth. It's got khat in there, okay? And 
it was it originally came from uh, Ethiopia, uh, from the area of Hara, um, and um, then went into uh, Yemen and whatnot. And you know, um, you know, originally they say no, kot is it's just like um, coffee or something like that. And, but there's different types of kot. There's some that's psychedelic. There's some that's highly addictive. There's some that's very light. There's different versions of it. But overall, there was a conference of the ulama in Medina, you know, a, a number of years ago, and they classified it as haram. But some of the scholars, especially from the area of Yemen and other areas, they wrote one article and it said, Qat, the flower of paradise. And they said, it is chew, we chew it to make tahajjud, so we can get up at night. So we chew our qat. But if you look at qat chews, how many of them are making tahajjud prayer? Right? Very few are making tajid prayer. They're taking the milk out their baby's mouth. They're destroying their societies. Right? And you know, it's been banned in many countries now. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a major problem. Right? Pan in India is not the same. The pan leaf is not the problem, it's what you put in the pan. So if you put tobacco and hashish or whatever inside the pan, then you get high. But chewing the pan itself doesn't do it to you. Because I sat with the you know, Ulama Kiram in, in Medina Mosque, the Hilal Committee, and they pulled out the pan. Right? And they chewed, right? <laughs> and I tasted it, right? It didn't do anything. But it's, it's what, they put some things in taste like caramel or something. You know, so it depends on what you put inside the pan. The point is, this is a challenge. Because maybe the father chose cot, and he said, that's my traditional thing. But the, but the young, young people are looking at him, and they're going to smoke hashish. They're going to say, I'm not going to get my mouth all wet and all. I'm going to take a pill. Right? Because you, you're getting high. You're staying up 35 hours. You chew it, and you can't go to sleep for hours. Right? So this is a challenge for the younger generation. And drugs are all over the place. Okay, number nine is disease and the lack of health facilities. And that is especially in the countries um, outside the Western countries. Um, the new diseases coming up and the lack of health facilities. Right? Number ten is urbanization. And that is the youth with their families are forced to migrate to large cities. And they're really suffering. I just heard a report today that in Mongolia, um, there, was a, there was a BBC reporter in Mongolia, and they said the pollution, it may have the highest index in the world, is in Mongolia. And because of their uh, position in the world, they're suffering from the global disruption in terms of the, uh, the, the climate change. They're suffering terrible. They had terribly cold winter and terribly hot dry summers and drought. And the people are burning coal right in their houses. And what's happened is, if you go out into the, the desert area where the, where the nomad Mongolian people lived, the air is fresh and the animals are there running around, horses running around. But when you go toward the cities, now it's, it's covered with this uh, clouds and smog. It's smog. And they're increasing it you know, by the, the coal, they're burning coal. So these people are coming in, 
forced into the cities, and so they're in these sprawling ghettos around the city, and they don't have electricity and running water like other people. So that this coal is coming up, and when they have cloudy days and whatnot, it gets stuck back, that smog, you see? So urbanization causes a lot of things. Some even say that even wars like the Syrian war, one of the big uh, reasons why the Syrian war came off like it did was because of urbanization, because people forced into the cities, right? It, it's causing a lot of problems. It's one of the un, untold stories that's causing a lot of problem in the world. And 11 of the many problems is Islamophobia. In Islamophobia, we know the illogical fear of uh, Islam and Muslims is something which, you know, is taking its toll around the world. Just to um, give you some points uh, that were made um, in terms of solutions, um, there's a few uh, points that were made. Uh, number one, and, and you know, these are for the younger generation, an increase in taqwa. The younger generation will have to try to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is going to be a challenge on them as it was on the people before. Two is sincerity to the Messenger of Allah alayhi salatu wasalam. Sincerity. And, and that is by following his sunnah, honoring his family, and having compassion for the ummah. Right? Sincerity to the Prophet, peace be upon him. Number three, emphasis on education. These are solutions now. Emphasize education, not only um, Islamic, authentic Islamic education, but also general education. Let's emphasize it. Number four, empowerment. The youth needs to be empowered. And empowerment can come about with skills development training. So the more skills that a young person has is the more confidence they have, and, and the higher is their self-esteem. Okay, so that's really important to overcome a lot of these problems. Skills development training. Five, positive peer pressure through teachings based on the seerah, on the life of the Prophet. Positive peer pressure. See, peer pressure can work two ways. But if, 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 if our community is developed in a way where the youth can express themselves, right, it can be a positive peer pressure that comes. Number six, alternative Islamic recreation. And that will come through action-oriented activities, camping, swimming, physical fitness, martial arts. Uh, also, Islamic entertainment. So that we have our own alternative entertainment. So they don't have to get caught up on, in that negative entertainment that teaches you morality or immorality while, it, while it's entertaining you, see? You're having a good time watching it, but they don't realize there's values being given to you. You love the hero and you hate the villain. Who's the hero of the program? Who's the villain? So they'll, they'll put those values in you, right? Because you love the hero of that program. Seven, special attention to girls and young women. This is, I believe, a big challenge uh, for the youth of the Muslim world, is to not to neglect the women, especially girls. Because in many cultures in the 20th century, it's part of our stagnation. Women were, were left out, not allowed to go to the mosque, not allowed to be involved in Islamic activities. You know, that's a major mistake. 
It's not sunnah anyway. But it's a major mistake because the younger generation of, of women now are as highly intelligent and highly skillful now in this new global society. Um, so why do we keep them out? Eight, operational unity. And that is um, that um, the different ways of approaching Islam, the Ahlul Sunnah wa Jama'ah especially, um, operational unity. If you're in different groups, whatever you like, whatever you focus on, tabligh, knowledge, you know, struggle, education, whatever it is, dhikrullah, unity, operational unity, where the groups appreciate each other. Younger generation is going to have to do this because unity is one of our big problems. Nine, youth involvement in leadership on all levels. All levels within our society, the youth need to be involved. And number 10, outreach to society. And that is an emphasis on providing Islamic solutions to real problems. Okay? So these are some of the uh, issues facing the youth. Um, this is a big, uh, it's a big area. Uh, it's it's very serious area. Okay, you, you got all those points? Everybody got the points? Right. Um, another point um, which, which, is, which is very important um, is that uh, <clears throat> Hakim ibn Hizam reported that the Messenger of Allah said, said, Yad al-Uliya khayran min Yad al-Sufla. Uh, he said that the upper hand is better than the lower hand. Uh, and he said, begin with those who are dependent on you. The best charity is when one is materially satisfied. Whoever restrains himself, Allah will increase his virtue. And whoever does without virtue, Allah will suffice him. Okay? Uh, whoever, uh, whoever does without, Allah will suffice him. Okay? Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's, this is dealing with, this is part of the characteristics in the revival. And that is um, ifa, because here it is saying, Okay? So whoever has ifa, ifa is um, modesty and self restraint is ifa, right? It's self-restraint, okay? And um, so what it's saying is, and this is a very interesting um, way of putting it, that the upper hand is better than the lower hand, okay? So in other words, the one that gives is better than the one that's taken. So what it's saying is that a type of modesty where we, we, we are not into begging at all. We don't beg. There's certain times, things like zakat and sadaqah, whatnot, that's the right. You're not supposed to be begging for that. It should be a right. But the concept of begging, of, of, of not having morality, you know, no shame in yourself, this leads people to do strange things. Okay, and so this is a very important issue. Uh, the, the idea of modesty and begging and, um, you know, it is, especially for the younger generation, they need to come up, you know, with a different concept. And that's one of the problems we faced with the holiday here called Halloween. Because in Halloween, they make the, the children go around 
put on disguises and they, they beg for candy. So you go around, and that's one of the reasons why we don't do that. Okay, is that also the whole concept of the welfare system, right? That we would prefer to work, you know, for our uh, pay, uh, our food, as opposed to just taking it from the state, right? And there's nothing wrong if a person's in need. That's what uh, zakat and sadaqah is about. There's nothing wrong with that. But when the person bases their whole situation on this welfare thing, and it causes people to do strange things. You know, um, it, happened in, um, um, it happened in New York, I'll say the city, unfortunately, that there were people who got into this polygamy thing heavy. And um, they wanted, they had like this pressure to get more than one wife. It was like manhood to do it. But they couldn't afford it. So they ended up putting their wife on welfare. Now, for a, a, a woman to go on welfare, you have to say to the people that you don't have a husband. Right? Because if you've got a husband, you can't go on welfare. So she has to go down there and she says, okay, uh, I got a baby and you know, I got a husband and you know, uh, I, I don't have a husband. So they put her on welfare. Ten months later, she comes back to the office with two babies, lying. And really, if she's lying to the state and saying, I don't have a husband, some ulama would say that's like a separation. Because she's saying officially taking an oath, saying, I don't have a husband. He's saying, you're not married to me, right? And it's shameful and, and, and that she has to go to do this, right? And um, so that is an extreme, you know, but like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, is that whoever restrains themselves, Allah will increase their virtue, right? And if you do without, then Allah will suffice you, right? So this concept, this is a very important concept you know, for many of our communities, uh, especially those who are suffering uh, materially, uh, and there's a lot of poverty, uh, this is a very important point. Okay? So I want to open up the floor for any um, uh, final questions or any feedback anybody has, you know, concerning... Uh, I think one of the things, sorry, one of the yeah, things sorry. that um, I would actually sort of introduce to the list is, is negative indoctrination. And there's a case in England where the Christians and the Muslims got together with the education system. Mm. And, they were, and the brother showed one picture of a child, mm. albeit a five-year-old child, standing in front of a mirror and saying, I think I'm in the wrong body. Mm. So indoctrinating them to think other, other than what Allah SWT created. Yeah. You know? And um, the other thing with, with movies that I... I wouldn't mind uh, adding is that what they've done to us adults and children is bring us down to one level. Mm. So we are thinking the same. Adults and children just thinking the same. We're all on one level. That's right. And I think that's, that's a problem. And, yeah, and this causes like a type of disrespect for the elder generation. You know, and that's why the Prophet was very harsh, harsh with this. So if you don't show the rights, the shut off and dignity of the older generation, you're not from us. You're not from us. That's serious. And it's not that many times that he says that. So you remember uh, the Sunnah, Man Raghiban Sunnati, Falaysa Minni. You hear it in Nikah all the time, right? That whoever you know, goes against my Sunnah is not from me. That's harsh. So he used that term in dealing with the older generation. 
So it's very serious. Now, the other uh, questions anybody has or comments? So, uh, inshallah, we will continue next week on um, through the 40 hadith. Again, these are areas, all of these areas could take a whole week of study. Right? It's opening up the door to these areas. And in the future, that, that's the concept of this, that this, these could become things which our younger generation and our community can, can focus on. If we focus on these areas, inshallah, we can revive. We can bring it back. But it's really crucial for us to do this. So I leave you with these thoughts. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yeah, so next week there is a class, but... but uh